Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. In the summer of 2009, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill that would limit greenhouse gases for the first time. The Waxman-Markey proposal also would create a national market for trading the right to emit carbon pollution. But this summer, a companion bill died in the Senate. While China, England, and many countries around the world have an integrated national strategy for clean energy, the U.S. does not. Where does America go from here? Here to discuss our energy future is Massachusetts Democrat Ed Markey, co-author of the Waxman-Markey Bill and chair of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. Please welcome Congressman Markey to Climate One. Thank you. (laughs) Congressman, welcome. Thank you. Let's begin about one year ago in the summer of 2009. the bill went to the floor. And take us inside it and, and tell us really what it took to get that bill. It passed by seven votes. A lot of Democrats voted against it. Uh, take us inside a little bit, if you would, to that key moment when you were able to get the votes and get that on the floor. Every expert said that it could not be done. Um, no one really believed that we could pass such a comprehensive piece of legislation in such a brief period of time. So from the point at which uh, Barack Obama was sworn in on January 20th, 2009, until June 26th, 2009, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Congressman Waxman, and I uh, put together a concerted effort um, to defy all expectations, to put together a coalition of uh, businesses, of consumer groups, of labor unions, of religious uh, leaders uh, in order to uh, telescope the time frame that it would take in order to uh, pass legislation. Uh, On June 26th, um, every expert was still predicting that we could not get the votes as the morning uh, arrived. Um, But we had already, by that time, uh, put together the coalition, uh, which made it possible for us Uh, to pass the legislation. And it wasn't just uh, uh, the wind and the solar, uh, the geothermal and the biomass, the plug-in hybrids and the the, uh, all-electric vehicles that were the core of the coalition, but it also included uh, the Edison Electric Institute. It included um, the uh, Nuclear Energy uh, Institute. Uh, It included the steel workers of Mm. America. it included the consumers' union. Uh, it included religious leaders from across the country. That's what made it possible uh, to put it together, uh, because it is a national security issue. Uh, it is an economic uh, issue. Uh, it is an environmental issue. And it is a moral issue. Uh, and all of it combined to create, in a very brief period of time, um, uh, the coalition uh, that passed it. Uh, and it was imperative to do so uh, because the rest of the world is waiting for the United States to be the leader uh, so that uh, they will know uh, that we take something seriously where over the last century we had been the leading polluter 
uh, sending that CO2 up into the atmosphere. And how useful or uh, engaged was the White House? Some people in the climate community say the White House has been holding back, but in that period, when, and I've heard people say that you forced their hand by bringing it to the floor, and the White House really got engaged. Did, were they really in, uh, instrumental in getting it through? Uh, Barack Obama invited the Energy Committee down to the White House uh, in May. Um, now, I've been on the Energy uh, Committee for 34 years, and this was the first time that any president had ever invited the entire committee down uh, as a unit. Uh, and he did so in order to tell us, one, uh, that it was at the very top of his priority list, and since the Energy and Commerce Committee also has jurisdiction over health care, he told us that his other high priority was to pass health care legislation and that we on that committee had a chance to make history with him. Uh, and like Abraham Lincoln as president and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that he intended to use his political capital uh, in order to advance the issues, uh, and he did. Did he do so in the Senate? When the bill, the bill passed in the House and then it went to the Senate, and some people think that the president has not been as engaged on the Senate side as he was in those two weeks when it went to the floor. A series of events unfolded that would have been unpredictable, including the extended time that the Senate uh, had to use in its consideration of the uh, health care legislation. Uh, that bill was not signed uh, in the East Room of the White House until the end of March of 2010. No expert predicted that, so that it would take so long. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, within the next month, uh, we had uh, the BP disaster uh, down in the Gulf of Mexico beginning on April 20th. And so events kept conspiring to uh, derail uh, the issue to distract attention nationally uh, from the importance uh, of this issue. Uh, and ultimately, the Republican leadership then used the 60-vote rule uh, in the Senate uh, as a way of engaging in obdurate, obstinate opposition uh, to this legislation uh, passing, and time was their friend. Eric Pooley, who's deputy managing editor of Bloomberg Businessweek and wrote a very good book called The Climate War, was here a few weeks ago, told Politico when the Senate pulled the plug on a, on a climate bill. Eric Pooley said the absence of direct, intense presidential leadership doomed this process. Do you agree? Again, as I said, it's a very complex um, dynamic. Um, not only did the health bill take longer than anyone thought because of uh, Republican use of, in my opinion, arcane, uh, obsolete Senate rules to delay consideration of the health care bill. They did the same thing for consideration of the financial reform bill, uh, which also took much longer than it should have. Uh, and so, unfortunately, uh, while the House of Representatives, especially under Nancy Pelosi's leadership, uh, moves swiftly to deal with complex issues, it's the complexity of Senate rules which then allows for a delay in consideration until the political climate uh, has been created uh, and the, uh, the unity of Republicans in opposition, uh, which make it very difficult to deal with the issue. Uh, if, um, if, uh, uh, if you look at it objectively, it's pretty clear that Senator McConnell uh, has made this a number one priority uh, for of the Senate, that is to block any consideration. And I understand that because his state is one of the leading coal producers uh, in the country, uh, but I don't think that is something that should be uh, laid at the feet of President Obama. Uh, also, another coal state, Illinois, a couple of Republicans from Illinois voted for Wet Waxman Markey, uh, Mike Castle, Mark Stephen Kirk. Um, are there people on the other side of the aisle that you think took principled stands, Republicans that broke ranks to support a climate bill? Yeah, this ultimately is not a Democrat or Republican uh, issue. Uh, this, this should be um, an issue that deals with the economic security of our country. If we don't move 
China is going to move. Mm -hmm. Germany is going to move. We will lose the opportunity to be the global leader in these renewable and efficiency uh, technologies. It's a national security issue. Uh, we have to back out all of the imported oil from OPEC um, that, that skews our uh, international uh, diplomacy uh, positioning. Um, and, uh, uh, and it is a climate issue. I mean, we just saw that uh, a block of ice four times the size of Manhattan has broken off of uh, the uh, Greenland ice ma mass. And, uh, and I did say last week that it's a, it's a country now. It's the size of a country um, that climate deniers might want to all move to, you know, that block of ice. Um, but uh, it's all evidence of the imperative to move, not on a partisan, but on a bipartisan uh, basis in, in order to solve the problem. And those Republicans that voted for the bill, I think, reflected uh, that perspective that these are national issues, not Democrat or Republican issues. And, and where, where now? I mean, what, what happens now? Will it be a spill bill? Uh, what can happen to the remainder of this Congress? I think that, uh, you know, the, the final story has yet to be written on how much energy legislation uh, can pass this year. We will come back in uh, September. We could come back in a lame duck that is yet to be finally determined. Um, but I think there's still a lot uh, of work that can be done this year. Uh, and I actually think that the political campaign is going to help to focus people uh, on the opposition to creating, for example, a national renewable electricity standard national building efficiency standards, national appliance standards, to, to work smarter, not harder, uh, to reduce the amount of energy which we need uh, while not impacting at all upon uh, our economic uh, prosperity. And I think that uh, the fact that the Republican leadership in the Senate, in the House, have decided to make it an issue, uh, I think is going to lead to an activation across the country of people who are really concerned about these issues and can give the issues razor blade sharp edges uh, in this election cycle. So if I hear you correctly, you think that a, a renewable electricity standard and some of those things can actually go through uh, in the next few weeks? Again, I've been on the Energy Committee for 34 years. Um, wow. I would not stay on the committee if I was not an optimist. Uh, we've already made tremendous progress. I think that the passage of the Waxman-Markey bill is proof of the inevitable, inexorable pathway that our country is going to take. Uh, it's not a question of if, but when all of this legislation uh, passes. And so I'm not giving any guarantee that all of this is going to pass this year, but I am giving a guarantee that it is going to pass in the next several years. Uh, not only does the rest of the world expect us to take leadership, uh, but the green generation rising up uh, is going to demand that we take uh, leadership. The baby boomers have let down the green generation, uh, and they are rising politically, and there is uh, going to ultimately be uh, a political demand uh, that America become the leader and not the laggard that we not import from China, but produce here these technologies led by our own technology, our own venture capital community. So even in a Congress, the next Congress, that if the pundits are correct, will have more Republicans uh, than, than it does now, you still think that some these energy uh, policies can move through a Congress that has different composition than the one that passed waxman marking In 1993 and 94, I was the chairman of the Telecommunications Committee, and I had passed legislation that created the 18-inch satellite dish industry. I had passed legislation that created the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth cell phone license so that we would move from analog to digital and drop the price to under 10 cents a minute. Then in uh, 94, I passed the legislation which uh, would have created the broadband revolution, uh, moving from uh, analog to, to digital, narrowband to broadband uh, back in 1994. It passed the House of Representatives. But then Bob Dole decided to engage in gridlock and stopped it from passing. The 1996 Telecommunications Act, which moved us to broadband, um, passed 
Well, Republicans controlled the Congress. There were more Republicans, but there was now an historical imperative that we move forward uh, because the legislation had already passed in the House of Representatives. Now, that bill passed in 96, and 10 years later, the vocabulary in America is Google, eBay, Amazon, Hulu, YouTube. It was branded made in the USA. We need to do the same thing in the energy sector. Uh, and the companies that will be created, that will bloom, uh, will be uh, those that are uh, here in the United States. And I think it is going to become an economic imperative, if nothing else, uh, that we not lose this sector to the Chinese and others who are targeting it. Well, one of the bright spots here is, is the stimulus bill, which actually di- directed a lot of capital toward high-speed rail, uh, other, uh, battery industry in the United States. So what do you see as the highlights of the stimulus bill that is driving the kind of jobs and investment that you just spoke about? Well, in the, um, uh, in the time since uh, Speaker Pelosi created the um, Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, um, I focused on... Um, on uh, three separate bills in the same way that I focused on the three bills in the telecommunications sector to unleash that revolution back in the 1990s. Um, And so the first bill was the um, 2007 energy bill, which finally adopted my language to increase fuel economy standards from 25 to 35 miles per gallon, which now drives the plug-in hybrid and the all-electric vehicle revolution the Volt, the Leaf, and others that are on the way. And a movement towards cellulosic fuel uh, and away from corn-based ethanol, all in the 2007 bill. Then in uh, January and February of 2009, in the stimulus bill, uh, what we were able to do under Speaker Pelosi's leadership is build in the money for a smart grid, build in the money for battery research uh, and production. Uh, build in the money that gave the incentive for uh, the deployment of wind uh, and solar renewable electricity across the country. Not only at the height of the reception, uh, rece- uh, recession was there not a decline in the amount of renewable electricity generated, but we saw a spike in 2009 because of the tax benefits that were in the stimulus bill. We went up to 10,000 new megawatts of wind deployed in the United States in 2009. How much is that? Diablo Canyon, as a nuclear power plant, is 1,000 megawatts. The Seabrook nuclear power plant, 1,000 megawatts. 10,000 new megawatts of wind were deployed in our country in 2009 because of the stimulus bill. And more is on the way with solar, with biomass, with geothermal, and uh, it is going to be an exploding sector uh, driven by the investment that was triggered by the uh, stimulus bill. One of those projects was Cape Wind, which you came out in support of in November, but a lot of people in Nantucket were against it. And NIMBYism is a real threat to renewable deployment. I mean, do you think the feds, well, government needs to take a more active role in some of these state turf issues when it comes to generating and transmitting renewables? Well, I supported um, the Cape Wind uh, project. Uh, And I think what happened in the Gulf of Mexico is a good example of why we have to move more and more uh, in that direction. Uh, off of the coastlines of our country. You do not need to build a blowout preventer into the deployment of wind turbines, into the deployment of, um, of solar panels. Okay? Uh, there, it's much more benign. Uh, it's obviously controversial in the early years, but um, over time, I think people are going to realize that it is non-polluting. Uh, they create jobs here in America. Uh, uh, and they reduce uh, the amount of, uh, of uh, contribution which we are making uh, to the, the, this ever-intensifying global warming. So, uh, yes, I think it is a role that the federal government has to play uh, off of our shores where the federal government has principal responsibility and on public lands uh, in our country where we can use public lands as a place to deploy wind and solar and other renewable electricity um, uh, technologies as a way of driving uh, early um, industry investment that ultimately will lower the cost and allow for um, more cost-effective deployment across our entire country and then across the world as the U.S. becomes the world leader. 
Do you think some traditional environmental groups who object to uh, distribution across pristine landscapes, we have a lot of fights here in California over uh, particular land and where generation can happen. Do you think the environmentalists are actually an obstruction in some cases to renewable uh, projects going forward? Uh, ultimately, you know, Hegel created his uh, thesis, anti-thesis synthesis. Okay? So you need a thesis you then need someone else to point out the problems in it, and out of it comes the synthesis. So, of course, there are going to be proponents who will say, build you know, renewable energy technologies anywhere. There will be others who point out some of the problems with that. And out of it comes, I think, a resolution that will allow for deployment. And I actually was reading this past week about a story where upwards of 5,000 megawatts of solar-based technology can uh, uh, be deployed in a part of California, which is now abandoned farmland, uh, which will be a win-win, uh, where there are no environmental issues, and yet the sun is shining most of the time, uh, and industry wants to move in, uh, solving two problems at once. So I think that uh, the, the tension that exists there is greatly overstated in terms of what ultimately is the potential that can be unleashed. The author of that article was going to be here today. I don't, I don't see him, but yeah, that, that was. A, I think I saw that too. It was a very good point. Is like it doesn't have to be a conflict through a process through some time. They can find a win-win location. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet is a utility cap, a cap of carbon emissions in the utility sector. Uh, when cap and trade fell apart, and some people wrote its uh, its uh, its death uh, notice, the utility cap came up as maybe a partial solution. Do you see that going forward? Uh, we uh, in New England uh, and across the East Coast already have something which is called a Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. We call it REGI mm -hmm. uh, for shot for the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. That already is a, a, an, an agreement that has been reached between the utilities of 10 states on the eastern seaboard uh, uh, and the utility industry. Uh, it is working. It's in its earliest stages. The same thing is true out here in California. Uh, there already has been a lot of progress uh, along those lines as well. Again, one of the interesting things about our legislation is that the Edison Electric Institute endorsed it. Uh, they understand, for the most part, that this is the, the direction uh, in which uh, the rest of the world is heading and that inevitably so won't our own country. So what our bill does is it calls for a 2% reduction each year for 40 years in the amount of greenhouse gases that would be produced and over a 40-year period result in an 80% reduction in greenhouse gases by the year 2050. We built in incentives, um, protections that allow for a transition for the utility uh, industry to be able to move forward. Uh, I was always very impressed with the leadership uh, of uh, many of the utilities, um, some from California. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and over time, I think that, uh, that people realize that the planet is running a fever. There are no emergency rooms for planets. We have to engage in preventative care if we're going to uh, protect the planet from the worst excesses of greenhouse gases. Um, and, uh, and I think the utility sector is the perfect area uh, where we can ultimately put together a package that will work on a nationwide basis. Congressman Ed Markey is chairman of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming and is our guest today here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, so if I hear you, you sound like you plan to reintroduce an economy-wide omnibus bill next year rather than going a la carte and trying to do utilities and do it in pieces. Is that correct? That is correct. And... Uh, uh, and I think, in the end, we have a responsibility to the rest of the world. Um, most of the CO2 is red, white, and blue, which is up there. Um, you cannot preach temperance from a bar stool. You cannot tell China and India you should stop uh, uh, if the, country, the countries, with, along with the EU, that are most responsible for the creation of the problem uh, continue to engage in the very same activities. So we need to have the moral and political uh, platform from which to provide the leadership uh, to the rest of the world and the alternative technologies that can be developed in those countries, deployed in those countries, uh, which would substitute 
uh, for the pathway which the United States went down. And so, yeah, I don't think we have an option. I think that uh, uh, we have to think comprehensively. Uh, I think the rest of the world would respond if we did take that leadership role. I think that the whole world wants the U.S. and China to partner uh, in the 21st century. But until we begin to lead, we should have no expectations that uh, China is going to follow. Some people say that the political Congress can't swallow a whole bill, that it gets too laden down with, with, with porking too many compromises and that a, a sectoral approach or a piecemeal approach might be uh, more expedient, more, more effective. The governor of Wyoming was here, a uh, Democrat, big coal state, but said that the bill had five pages from everybody and that it had some internal contradictions, which the authors needed to do to get the votes to get it through. Um, so I just want to get your response on the piecemeal approach and whether that might be more effective than sort of the omnibus bill. Well, the only problem with that, of course, is that the omnibus, omnibus bill did pass. So it would be great if the critics said that it can't pass if it didn't pass, but it did pass. And the beauty of people who are experts in subjects like this is they continue to predict it can't pass, even though they've already been proven wrong in the House of Representatives. So what gives me great confidence that it can pass is the same experts who said it couldn't pass in the House of Representatives now say it can't pass in the Senate. So uh, if they weren't on the other side, I would start to doubt my perspective. But as long as they all stay over there saying it can't be done, um, then I'm quite confident that it can. And again, it already has happened, uh, and it would have happened in the Senate, uh, but for the delay, and I give them some credit for brilliance, although in a Machiavellian, towards a Machiavellian negative uh, goal of delaying the health care bill and delaying the financial uh, bill for so long that it didn't leave enough time on the calendar to finish the climate bill. But no, they're wrong. Uh, we have to move comprehensively, and we can pass a comprehensive bill. Until the bill passes, there's the executive branch option, the EPA. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what the EPA is doing on, on, on that side as sort of the, you know, until Congress acts, it's always been the stick that's been waved as, mm-hmm. you know, uh, solve it legislatively or else we'll do it in a regulation way. Um, so what's, what's the latest on the EPA and tailoring of it? It's being litigated already. Well, that's the... That's the challenge for people who don't want any legislation to pass. The most important uh, environmental decision in the history of the United States Supreme Court was the uh, Massachusetts versus EPA decision in April of 2007. In that decision, by a five to four decision, five to four vote, with Justice Scalia uh, writing the dissenting opinion. Um, The Supreme Court ordered the EPA to make a determination as to whether or not greenhouse gases did uh, actually um, create a danger uh, to our health and well-being in the United States. If they determined that it did create a danger, then they had a responsibility to act. Well, as you you well know, um, The head of the EPA during the first years, six years of the Bush administration, when the Republicans controlled Congress, the head of the EPA did not appear before the Energy and Environment Committee for six consecutive years. No one knew the name of the head of the EPA during the Bush years. And I won't embarrass you right now and ask you what the name was. But Miller? It was, no, it was not Miller. But the, (laughs) that's all right. That's good. That, and that proves my point that it was the most successful witness protection program in the history (laughs) of our country. So you run the Climate Run One program here and you don't know the name. And so what happened was the, the, I I was at a conference in Washington on renewable energy. They cleared the room of all the delegates when he came in and spoke. They kicked everybody out. Yeah. It, was, it was a closed session. Yeah. Right. Well, this Code of Omerta uh, is one, of course, the Godfather Part 1 would appreciate. But uh, on the other hand, um, you needed to have the issue be aired, to be talked about. And so the Supreme Court ordered that the EPA consider it. And then, unbelievable, the EPA administer, administrator, Johnson, yes. his name was? Yeah, that's, that's it. It's like the duck coming down in the Groucho Marx show. Uh, Johnson. And, uh, and, and determined that it was a danger. But Dick Cheney in the White House ordered the White House not to accept the email from the EPA. So the endangerment finding was never finalized. And so when President Obama was sworn in in January, 
uh, he instructed Lisa Jackson at the EPA to begin the process uh, again. And so she, uh, in 2009, determined that it was a danger. Uh, and from that moment on, it was no longer a question of legislation or no legislation. It was now a question of legislation or regulation, because the Supreme Court has ordered the EPA, if it finds it to be a danger, to regulate. So the head of the EPA, Lisa Jackson, has been saying all along, I would prefer for the Congress to pass comprehensive legislation that would then give instruction to the EPA as to how to act. And, by the way, the legislation allows for much more flexible mitigation of the harm to consumers, to regions, to industries, which EPA regulation would not make possible. But nonetheless, EPA is under a mandate to act. And so there's a kind of a delusional um, mentality that many opponents uh, of uh, dealing with greenhouse gases uh, are operating with. Uh, There is going to be action. Uh, There is going to be something that happens. And I think ultimately that will drive them into the arms of those of us that want to do so comprehensively, but in a way which treats fairly all industries in America so they can make transitions for their companies and for their workers from the high carbon to the low carbon era. Some, I've heard some polluters say that they actually would prefer the EPA route because they can litigate it until uh, forever. I mean, there are 16, 17 states now, uh, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, steel, paper. There's lots of industries that are lining up to litigate against the tailoring rule to, okay. to, to, to play, the, play it out in court because they can win that game. Why can they win that game? At the end of the day, they lose that game. Delay, That's like, delay, delay. Oh, they, delay. Think, they, well, they win by delay. Well, but you lose ultimately if there's an APA regulation that goes on the books that you don't like because at the end of the day, the Supreme Court has already passed, uh, has already passed on this question. The EPA has to act. And so it's a little bit like uh, the movie Dirty Harry where Clint Eastwood playing uh, Lieutenant Callahan has that gun. And it's pointed at the guy lying on the street, and he's saying to himself, I know what you're asking yourself. Did he fire five times or six times? Yeah. And all I can ask you, sir, is this one question. Do I feel lucky? Okay. Yeah. So while there might be some industries that feel lucky that maybe that, that uh, bullet in the EPA's chamber might not, in fact, hit them, there are many other industries that would prefer to um, live in a predictable economic, regulatory environment where they know where the rules are. They're already abiding by similar rules in a European marketplace. Uh, They're part of U.S. CAP, and that means General Electric and Duke Power uh, and hundreds of companies across the country that have endorsed the approach in the Waxman-Markey bill, and they would prefer that predictable environment because then they will make the investment that complies with the law. So I don't deny that there aren't some outliers, but most companies, I think, once they realize that EPA is going to move forward, uh, would rather have legislation passed, uh, which gave them a long-term guarantee for what the rules of the road were, not not only in terms of their responsibilities, but also in terms of what the benefits are that Congress can provide to them as they make the transition. Congressman Ed Markey is chairman of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming and is our guest here at Climate One. Uh, We haven't mentioned Cancun yet. You talked about U.S. leadership internationally. Uh, In Mexico at the end of this year, ministers and uh, the world will gather again. What kind of hand is the U.S. going to go into Cancun with? Is it going to be a strong hand or is it going to be a, a weak hand because this Congress failed to act? Again, the year has yet to be completed. Uh, the EPA has uh, yet to uh, take its, um, uh, its uh, final steps or uh, move as close to the final steps as they uh, will ultimately have to do. Um, so, yeah, it would be better if we had completed legislation. It would be better if it was comprehensive. It would be better if President Obama was going there uh, as a leader with this legislation in his hands. But once Waxman-Markey passed, the president committed himself to a 17% reduction in greenhouse gases. That's the number we had in Waxman-Markey. And he has continued to reiterate his commitment to meeting that goal by 2020. 
17% reduction in greenhouse gases. So I think that the president uh, will still be a leader. Uh, it won't have, uh, if the legislation is not signed by then, uh, make it possible to go as far as I think um, we need to go in order to save the planet. But at the same time, uh, I think there will continue to be a progress, and it will be real progress after years where the United States was actually booed uh, at these global sessions, as, the, as, our, as our representatives were at Bali uh, back just four years ago. Uh, there is now a completely different atmosphere where the leaders of the world know that the U.S. wants to be a leader. Excellent. Um, I'd like to invite people to uh, come up to the microphone if you'd like to uh, pose a question to uh, Congressman Markey. Uh, we'll have a lot of people there, so I'll encourage you to, to keep them uh, brief. And I just want to ask one question before we go while they're getting sorted out. Um, Steve Schneider was a, a very well-known uh, climate scientist who passed away recently, well-known to us here in California. I'd like to know if you had any interactions with him in the, the decades you've been on the committee. He, he's been in the climate game longer than just about anybody. Legendary, you know, an inspiration, but uh, someone who I did not get to know as well as I would have liked. Interesting. Um, let's have a question from the audience. Yes, welcome. Great, thank you. Thank you for being here. My name is Holly Kaufman, and my question is, what is your sense of the need for legislation that ensures overseas markets for clean U.S. technologies? And if there is such a need, what does Congress need for provision in a climate bill or some other vehicle to make that happen? To, to open markets? To ensure that there are overseas markets for the clean technologies that are being developed here. Because of the competitiveness issue that you mentioned so many times with China, Germany, and other countries, do we need to ensure that we have markets overseas for those technologies? No, I do agree with you. We, no, we need to have not only free trade, but fair trade. Uh, we have to make sure that other countries are not um, exploiting technologies developed in America, manufactured at a lower cost overseas, and then winding up actually being deployed here. Uh, and I do believe that uh, our tax policies, uh, our regulatory policies, have to reflect our goal of ensuring that in the same way that those three telecom bills in the 1990s created two million new jobs here uh, in the United States in that tech sector, uh, that those jobs are created here in the United States as well. Uh, and I think everything that we do, and that goes through copyright protection, you name it, uh, has to uh, reflect the goal of ensuring uh, that uh, made in America uh, is what our policy is all about. In other words, we really don't want to go from a made by OPEC to a made in China uh, era without ever having had that made in America phase. Uh, and that's why we have to move fast to create the domestic incentives so that the venture capitalists and the technologists here develop and begin the manufacturing here and then create the incentives to ensure that it stays here. Right, but what about the, the let's overseas? Have, let's, right, let's have the next question. Thank you. Let's keep it. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Peter Gisela. I want to talk about national security and its relationship to energy independence. Yesterday I had a chance to hear Secretary of Defense Gates give a speech on national security. I was about this far away from I wanted to give him this information on a 30-year proposal for a youth yeah, energy. We can do that afterwards. Thank you. All right. But my, my question is, is I want to give you this afterwards and ask you to try to get a public comment from Secretary Gates on this relationship so that we can better understand what this country as citizens can do to become more energy self-sufficient. And if you could share this with your staff and have them dialogue with other Thank staff you. members. Yep. Thank you, sir. It is a national security issue. Uh, on, in the first hearing, which I had back in 2007, on this issue, um, the witnesses were General Gordon Sullivan, the former chief of staff uh, for the U.S. Army, who was in charge of uh, Somalia. Uh, during 1993, who testified that the problems in Somalia in the sub-Sahara was um, a drought caused by climate change that led to a famine, that led to U.S. troops having to be set in, that led to Black Hawk Down. Uh, and he wanted to make sure that not only he, but the other 11 three- and four-star generals who were presenting that testimony, led by General Zinni back in 2007, um, uh, knew that this was ultimately going to become an incredible national security issue. Sitting next to him, by the way, in that hearing, I had uh, James Woolsey, the head of the CIA, 
testifying to the same effect. Sitting next to him, I had Richard Haas, the, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, testifying to the same effect. Those were the first witnesses I had, even before the environment, even before uh, the economy. Uh, we really do have, ultimately, national security implications of, uh, on this issue. Uh, and the more that people in our country understand that, uh, is the more likely, I think, that we can win uh, legislatively. Yes, sir. Uh, Chairman, first and foremost, I want to thank you for all your leadership on this issue. It's made a huge difference. Uh, my name is Darian Rodriguez-Hayman with Code Green Agency. And we've been talking a lot today about uh, utility-scale solutions. I'm really curious to talk a little bit more about distributed and residential-scale solutions. Uh, and in particular, as we look at energy efficiency retrofits uh, and uh, renewable energy installations that are, by nature, local, local jobs, uh, one of the most powerful financing vehicles for that is PACE. Uh, you know, property tax financing, mm -hmm. which is currently under attack by mm -hmm. uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And I'm curious to hear if that's something that you've been looking at. And is there anything aside from a regulatory or, or legislative, rather, uh, fix that can address that issue? Uh, yeah. is, do you Thank see you. any possibilities? Yeah. Thank How you. do we fix pace? Yeah, I, I think that uh, you've put your finger on a big, big issue. I have spoken with uh, Attorney General Jerry Brown on this issue. I know he's leading the effort against uh, Freddie and Fannie. Uh, I support him 100%. I think he is absolutely correct that we must uh, ensure that, uh, that people are not disincentivized uh, in deploying uh, renewable technologies, uh, more energy efficiency uh, in their homes. And uh, as California goes, so will go the nation. So it's very important for, uh, for that to be one out here. And I'm glad that Jerry Brown is giving the leadership. I might also add that the same thing is true for this referendum that you're having out here in, uh, in California, uh, that the two oil companies from Texas have put on the ballot uh, to basically rescind the laws uh, dealing with climate change in the state of California. You cannot lose this issue out here. It's an imperative for you to beat back these two Texas oil companies. Uh, they are only interested in the short-term profitability of their shareholders. They are not interested in the creation of renewable energy jobs here in, Mass in, uh, in California, uh, of saving the planet, uh, of backing out imported oil. Okay? That is not their agenda. And those who are in this room, this is the time, this is the place, you are the people. Uh, and you can create a very nice campaign out here. Uh, that will draw national and international attention to your state. Uh, and if you win here, I think we can win everywhere. If they lose here, the oil companies, they can lose everywhere. Okay? So just know that on both of those issues, both on PACE and on uh, the climate change referendum that uh, uh, will destroy your efforts out here, uh, that you have a real chance, once again, uh, to be the leaders. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Chairman Markey, for your brilliant leadership on climate and offshore oil. I'm Cassie Siegel with the Center for Biological Diversity, and my question is about the Clean Air Act. It seems that all of the cap-and-trade bills, including your own, have started from the assumption that we will trade existing Clean Air Act programs for greenhouse gases for a new cap-and-trade system. And I'm wondering, now that the EPA is, in fact, moving forward with greenhouse gas reductions, under these Clean Air Act programs that have been so enormously successful, mm -hmm. Do you think it's time for a fresh start on this aspect of the legislation? And would you support the bill that so many of us want to see that would build upon and not roll back all of the successful Clean Air Act programs for greenhouse gases? Thank you. Well, and thank you for uh, raising that question. First of all, under no circumstances will we pass any legislation that uh, rolls back anything that deals with... Uh, SO2 or NOx or uh, particulates, mercury, none of that will ever get rolled back in any legislation that we are dealing with. So it, the question here is just focused on the greenhouse gases and its impact on climate. And what we tried to do was to, uh, working with the EPA, working with Lisa Jackson, to include language within the legislation that would uh, create a permanent uh, national law that would regulate greenhouse gases. Uh, and that would substitute for whatever the EPA might do, but it would be done with the approval of the EPA. Uh, now that legislation uh, is slowing in the Senate and the EPA 
uh, is moving along, I think that we are going to have to monitor this on an ongoing basis uh, in order to see where we are. Again, this is the challenge for the opponents. The opponents who uh, say they can win in court uh, might actually get that opportunity if they are ultimately successful uh, in blocking uh, the legislation from passing. So, um, again, at the end of the day, if we can pass comprehensive legislation, uh, I think that's a better way of going. I think having all the rules uh, become a permanent part of the law, I think that's a better way uh, of going. Uh, but ultimately, I reserve the right to change my point of view uh, if, um, if the dilatory, uh, delaying tactics of the opponents uh, are successful to a point in time where a regulatory scheme is, in fact, effective and working. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. Hi. My name is Victor Minotti. I direct the International Forum on Globalization. We're a global policy think tank out here in the Presidio of San Francisco. Um, my question is about the important international provisions that your bill included, which Senator Kerry's draft discussion did not include. Um, these are all essential elements for a global deal. In particular, I'm interested in, in your inclusion of the clean energy, the technology sharing uh, mm -hmm. parts of, of the, the, the bill, um, the law, which, which you led. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm curious what you saw that senators don't seem to see yet because there's been no champion to emerge yet to, to call for it. They haven't heard much from uh, clean energy companies, especially here in California. But our sense is this is what's needed to help developing countries build the policy frameworks, mm -hmm. the workforce development, and access to financing, and so on. So if you could talk you, a little Kerry. bit about Thank you. what you saw. Well, first let me stipulate that it's always been very difficult for me to project myself inside the internal workings of senatorial brains. Okay? So <laughs> I just want to you know, let you know that uh, there are limitations after all. Um, but that said, uh, I think it is essential for us to build in um, the clean energy mechanisms, the international transfer of these uh, technologies, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the incentives for uh, the uh, adoption of these technologies in other countries in the world. And I might also add on the international front uh, that we built in uh, four to five billion dollars per year in order to protect the, the rainforests of the planet, the Amazon, Africa, Indonesia. That was in our bill uh, as well. So we understand that the United States can't solve the problem alone, uh, that uh, a, a ton of CO2, wherever it grows up in the world, uh, is uh, accelerating, exacerbating the problem. Um, so uh, Mr. Waxman and I, with, um, with uh, Speaker Pelosi, we ensured that we had a very robust international component. Uh, we hope that when we reach the day where we're in a conference committee with the Senate, um, that we will fight to include provisions uh, that ensure that we deal with the essential international aspects of this problem. It's not like acid rain just blowing from the Midwest into the, into the, 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 the lakes and the forests of the East Coast. This is something that is international, uh, and that's why the legislation uh, reflected that. And I thank you for your nice words about the Waxman-Markey bill. Um, and, and it's our intention at some day... Uh, at a timing to be determined by the Senate that we meet uh, and that we will have an opportunity to explain uh, the essential international nature of the problem and the solution. Congressman Ed Markey is chair of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, is our guest here at Climate One. Before we go to the next audience question, a quick follow-up. Uh, Secretary Hilton, Clinton made a big uh, announcement in Copenhagen with $10 billion mm -hmm. uh, for international aid. Do you know what the status of that money? Do we know where that's coming from? Is that on its way? Because that was received very well by overseas as a sign of U.S. seriousness mm -hmm. and commitment. Well, again, a lot of that money was inside of the Waxman-Markey okay. bill. It has to come out of, okay. Well, I mean, there are other places where funding can be found. There are other places. But... In order to provide a long-term, sustainable commitment, uh, you need to pass comprehensive legislation so that the funding is there, not just for these international programs, but also uh, for the, the wind, the solar, the, the plug-in hybrids, the, the, the new modern um, uh, technologies that are going to be necessary in order to solve the problem. So, uh, you know, okay. hopefully, you know, the world understands that, but... 
I know that President Obama and Secretary Clinton are committed uh, to working with the Congress to find the funding in order to ensure that, um, that uh, we do help those countries in the world that do not have the financial resources uh, to be able to make the transition without some help. Thank you. Please. Thank you very much for being here today. My name is Corinne Reichweiser from Climate Earth, located just down the street. Um, And I know that the EPA toxics release inventory currently requires large toxic emitters to report on their emissions and provide transparency to consumers. Do you see similar opportunity for greenhouse gas emissions and company reporting, both of direct emissions and supply chain emissions? Uh, Absolutely. I think that uh, that is an indispensable part of uh, ensuring that everyone understands who is responsible for the creation of this problem. Um, that kind of transparency, that kind of public access uh, is, um, is ultimately going to lead to uh, a change in the law uh, because it allows people uh, to be able to pinpoint where the problem is in their own community. Uh, and it gives, ac- uh, it gives activists a target uh, and, uh, you know, politics is a stimulus response uh, institution. And, uh, and there's nothing like a couple of thousand people in your own hometown uh, telling you that what you're doing is wrong and must stop uh, to force the CEO to begin to have the meetings uh, that for the last 20 years he's been able to avoid. And so, yes, I think you're right on the money. And then here in San Francisco, but in Albuquerque, and in, uh, in, in every community in America, the activists... Uh, can then take uh, the kinds of steps that will make these companies accountable. Please. Thank you. I'm Chris King with eMeter, and first I'd like to thank you on behalf of my company and many others in the Silicon Valley who are benefiting from the stimulus bill and the $4.5 billion in uh, smart grid money that uh, was included in there. Um, Turning to my question, we've talked a lot internationally in utilities and big companies, and wanted to turn it a little bit back toward consumers and what consumers can do to help with climate change. And I know you have a bill pending uh, around providing information to consumers, and and I know studies have shown that consumers could reduce 5 to 15% from that. Could you just mention briefly your ENO bill and what the prospects are? Thank Thank you. Yeah, ENO says that consumers should know, you know, everything they can possibly know about their electricity bill. What was it in their home that was consuming all that electricity? Which days of the week were they consuming most of the electricity? Uh, And they should have it in front of them each month so so that they can go back to the uh, electrical generating company and say, "Uh, I might have a little issue here. What is going on? Or they can say to their spouse, their partner, "Um, maybe we want to get a more efficient air conditioner. Maybe we want to uh, invest in... Um, in, uh, in new metering technology or more remote control technology that will allow us to turn off the air conditioning when we leave by remote and have it turned on an hour before we come home. Maybe we want to have this, as you point out, this smart grid technology come to life because knowledge is power. And, in Iran, and, and interestingly, the smart grid is really the electricity internet. Um, without the three telecom bills in the 1990s that made the transition from black rotary dial phones to Blackberries possible, you know, would it be possible for us to be talking about a smart grid where you're able to pull out your device and say, oh, I've got I to gotta turn down my air conditioning or you know, turn on the heat before I get home, but you don't have to have it on all day. You can be managing all... You know, I'm very proud of the fact that, that uh, even here this morning that... Uh, I've watched many people look down and check their Blackberries while I was speaking. And, uh, <laughs> Busted. No, I, no, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that revolution <laughs> since it was my bills that made it all possible. My hope is that we can reach a day when people never look up again, that they're managing, they're managing everything. They're, they're managing their refrigerator, their, their air conditioning, uh, everything in their home, and they never have to look up again. Human interaction will be unnecessary. It'll just be a relationship with you and this electronic device in your pocket. That's what the three telecom bills make possible. That's what the stimulus money for the smart grid continues to enhance because people can manage their energy use. And what you're talking about, the e-no bill, 
is just a way of empowering people even more to alter the relationship between people and their utilities uh, so, that, uh, so that they are able uh, to, to uh, reduce on an individual basis. But we know it will spread like a mania uh, once the device is out there that people can buy. And they're already out there, by the way, and they're still primitive forms, these remote control devices that can help you with your home. Um, but we're going to reach a point where it'll be like Hulu and YouTube and other things that seemed like uh, it was uh, Star Wars kinds of stuff just three or four years ago, which everyone now accepts as part of the culture. I think in 10 years we'll be at that point. Thank you, sir. Next question. Uh, hi, my name is Sarah Dudley. I'm a librarian and a researcher at maplight.org. Uh, First of all, I also want to thank you for your continuing leadership with Waxman Markey. Uh, a common criticism among the environmental left, environmental activists about cap and trade is that the securitization of pollution is going to lead to wealth generation for Wall Street, for brokers and traders, but mm -hmm. it's not really going to have uh, a positive financial impact on the people on the ground who are going to be changing their energy use or just benefiting, but it's, they're not going to benefit financially. Uh, how would you respond to that criticism of cap-and-trade? Uh, I would say that if we are going to create uh, a marketplace for the trading of permits to pollute, uh, that we would want those markets to be as deep and as liquid as possible. And we would want as many people in because that will lower the price. That will make it uh, a much more affordable marketplace to um, have investors uh, take a chance on. Uh, and the real problem is not in the inherent uh, dishonesty in those marketplaces. It is that during the Bush presidency, um, they allowed for regulations not to be, uh, in fact, um, uh, implemented, uh, and the regulators themselves turned a blind eye to the problems. So the problems weren't with the financial instruments themselves, except to the extent to which the risk was never me uh, measured, that the regulators did not do their job. But if that's the case, then we might as well do away with the New York Stock Exchange. We might as well do away with the NASDAQ. Then you can't trust any of it. Uh, it actually is an indispensable part of modern capitalism, but you have to regulate it to within an inch of its life. You have to make sure that there's total disclosure, total transparency. Uh, the games aren't being played. Uh, you can't allow for Enron and those kind of players to now show up in this kind of a marketplace. And there is a sure and certain way of discouraging them, and that is to let them know that long prison terms will accompany any attempts to compromise this marketplace. And I think that's a single that will be sent by the Obama administration uh, as we move forward. Uh, I will also say, however, that if there are alternative ways that you know, people think that the same goals can be accomplished, then we would be willing to look at that as well. But I don't think that um, the fact that one marketplace got compromised uh, should in any way say that uh, at the end of the day, because that goes back to the Hegelian dialect. Okay? Your unbridled capitalism is, in fact, something to be very afraid of. And that's what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. He saved capitalism from itself. He created a Securities and Exchange Commission. He created the regulations that then made capitalism something that ordinary people could feel safe to take their money from out from under their mattress and put it back into uh, the capitalist system. And if we can't ensure that that is the case for this kind of a trading marketplace, then shame on us. We have three questions, seven minutes. Let's do it. Senator Markey, guilty as charged. <laughs> Can I say this? I, I, I ignore the insult where you just called me a senator, but, um, <laughs> but and I know I just you know I know it, it meant to be an honorific, but uh, I guess I could say thank it twice. My question concerns uh, other leadership elements that the uh, government can take. The government owns you know, many, many buildings around this country. The GSA owns half a million buildings mm -hmm. itself. What I'm wondering is uh, what actions are the government taking to help in leadership by conserving energy within these buildings, which you know does uh, emit quite a bit of GHGs. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, and I did not know that this was the case before I just heard that Ray Mabus is coming here next week to talk about the Green Navy. Uh, but, uh, in fact, that is now something that has been pervasively interjected by the Obama administration into every one of their agencies. In fact, 
uh, all cabinet secretaries are invited to all of the meetings which this energy task force, which the president has put together, uh, that is uh, chaired by Carol Browner uh, in the White House. So they all hear from the vice president, Joe Biden, and from Carol Browner how important it is for each one of them and everything that they do uh, uh, be aimed towards reducing the carbon footprint of their agencies. So uh, it is, it is a, a revolution. Uh, we are obviously, that is the federal government, is the largest energy consumer uh, in the United States. Uh, and it gives us, as a government, a chance to be cutting edge in terms of the purchase of the new technologies, uh, the, uh, the deployment uh, of uh, cutting edge technologies that uh, then become much more market priced uh, for general consumption. So thank you, sir. And it is something that the Obama administration is doing, although the pace can be accelerated uh, even more to ensure it uh, reaches every single aspect of the government. Thank you, sir. My name is Louis Rasky. And uh, contrary, I guess my main question, you've talked a lot about the need for the Republicans at some point to get on board. You've painted an excellent pitch picture, that there's a Supreme Court decision, and there's just the role of history and the role of the world. When I worked in Washington many years... What's your question? What's your question? Yes. The question is, will the midterm elections, if they gain in the Senate, will that embolden them, or will that make them say, okay, now it's a time to make a deal? Lindsey Graham, who was supposedly an advocate, said, no, he's not interested in it right now. I realize you're not a senator. What is your thought which will make them move? Uh, again, I, I'm only going to repeat my thought that uh, we are going to wind up with legislation. It is inevitable. Um, the world is going to demand it. Our national security is going to um, demand it. Um, the economic um, imperative of not, a, not winding up with made in China being the epitaph for an entire manufacturing sector uh, in America that was never born, you know, will demand it. Uh, and it will be driven largely by Republican businessmen, Republican venture capitalists, uh, Republicans who will be saying to uh, senators who don't represent Kentucky or Oklahoma, what are you thinking? We don't have any coal in our state. We don't have any oil or natural gas in our state. What are you thinking? Our states have universities, technologists, venture capital community okay, that will create the jobs here in our state. Why are you siding with senators from Kentucky and from Oklahoma? It is only a matter of time. It is inevitable. The, Senate is, the Republican caucus is ultimately going to become a bubbling, boiling cauldron of controversy. Uh, but it is going to require Republican businessmen, venture capitalists, to finally say, I'm going to wind up being broke here. I can't have Deutsche Bank moving all its money to China. I can't have them moving uh, everything to other countries. I need it to happen here. I, I, am, a, I am an American. I want it to happen here. Uh, and you, Senator, uh, are not fulfilling your responsibilities to our economic growth potential or to our national security. Uh, by continuing to avoid the centrality of this issue. So I think there are powerful motivations uh, that are ultimately going to take hold inside of the Republican Party. The very fact that it's George Schultz and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger that are leading the effort against this oil company, um, Proposition, uh, 23. Pro Proposition 23, uh, out here in, um, uh, in California, tells you about the recombinant political DNA uh, that has already happened in Pennsylvania, in Maryland, in Delaware, in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and all the East Coast states. Uh, and it's not going to stop. You know, uh, Charlie Chris, the governor of Florida, talks about uh, this issue now as something that he wants to work on. Uh, and the largest uh, renewable energy producer in the United States is Florida Power and Light. Uh, so there may be people in Florida right now who are still holding on to a Kentucky and an Oklahoma agenda, uh, but as the Everglades continue to be threatened, as the sun as a source of energy is not exploited, it just seems to me uh, that uh, we will ultimately wind up with the coalition. The same thing, by the way, happened on telecom issues, where there were some senators that did not understand that 
they too are interconnected in a wired and wireless world. You know, they did not understand what the angle was for their state uh, because they were in California or Massachusetts. And ultimately, entrepreneurs, uh, investors in their state explained it to them, meaning to Republican congressmen and senators, and we wound up with bipartisan legislation. The same thing is going to happen here. Two minutes left. Last question, please. Hi, I'm James George with EnviroBeat. I guess my concern is with what I see as a disconnect between the demands of the climate science and the political reality of how far we can get. I mean, for example, the 17% proposed in Copenhagen, if you put it back in 1990 levels, it's 3 to 4%. It's not what so many countries around the world require the United States to step forward with, and it's certainly not what the science demands. Do you see this as a way to open the door and then maybe go further later? Or is this as far as you want to go? And do we even have time? Thank you. You know, um, somebody came up to Adlai Stevenson in the 1952 race and said, Adlai, great news. Every thinking voter is with you. And he said, that's great, he said, but I need a majority. You know? So we have a lot of work to do. All issues go through three phases. Political education, <clears throat> political activation, political implementation. Right? So when an iceberg, four times the size of Manhattan breaks off of, of uh, Greenland, it's just one additional step towards ultimately having legislation passed. If I had my way, the legislation would be much more bold. Okay? If I had my way, the Markey Amendment on fuel economy standards 35 miles an hour wouldn't have gotten 155 votes in 2001 on the House floor. But in 2007, it passed. Okay? The fact that it took six years is a test of all of us. Um, it, politics is not for sprinters. It's a marathon. Martin Luther King used to say that the arc of history bends towards, it's long, but it bends towards justice. It also bends towards comprehensive climate change legislation passing. But you have to stick with it and know that more allies are on the way. In the same way that the young people, the Freedom Riders, went south. In the same way that the young women, the suffragettes, rose up so too the green generation is arriving okay, as voters uh, and as powerful forces inside the community who are going to demand this change. And while we might start later and at a lower level than you like, we can intensify it in the later years in a way that avoids the worst consequences. If we haven't already reached a tipping point, which is my hope, then we still have time to save the planet. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Ed Markey, Chair of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming today to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you.